You may be wondering what it means when it says like copious rain in time of dearth. It simply means like abundant rain in a time of drought. So it's speaking of the time of refreshment that comes with the coming of the Lord Jesus. And we read of Jesus also speaking of that in our passage this afternoon from Matthew chapter 11. And so I invite you, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, page 1123 in your pew Bible. And we'll read the first 19 verses. Our text will be verses 7 through 19, but we will begin reading at verse 1. And when I say Christ here is speaking of the refreshment His coming brings, I'm thinking especially of verse 5. Let us now hear the word of God. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John, that's speaking of John the Baptist, had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber or a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. So far the reading of God's word, let us pray and ask for his blessing on it. Lord, we thank you for your word, a word that never changes, a word that is true, 
in every detail. And we pray that as we consider this passage from your word, that you would be pleased to open our eyes, that we may see wondrous things from your law, that you would incline each and every heart to your testimonies. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes it's not until you go to a a place where many people are a lot poorer than you, perhaps you go to another country on a mission trip or something like that, you come home realizing how indifferent you have been to your material blessings. You begin to have a new appreciation for what you have, don't you? You, you? you begin to really appreciate clean water, warm showers, a nice house, a good-paying job, enough food, a stable family. We, we so easily become indifferent to these things without even realizing it, don't we? We, we, we don't recognize so often what we have. And as a result, we don't make good use of what we have. We don't respond to what we have to, to use it to the fullest potential, to bless others. And sometimes even through poor choices in life, we, we throw it all away. We can do that with material blessings, with earthly blessings. But we can also do that with spiritual blessings. We can become indifferent toward the gospel, toward the good news of Jesus Christ. You you see this attitude in our society, don't you? You believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. That's our culture's attitude toward Christianity, toward the message that the Bible, the Word of God proclaims. It's a whatever kind of attitude. But gospel indifference, this attitude of it doesn't really matter, can even, you see, sneak into the church. And it can sneak perhaps especially into a church that has been around for several generations. It can happen so slowly and so subtly that we don't even notice. Over time, church can become just a routine. We don't recognize anymore the gospel for the good news it is. And as a result, we don't make use of it. We don't respond to it. And eventually, perhaps slowly or or perhaps suddenly, we reject it. We turn away from it. This has happened many times in many churches, also here in Canada. Some of you, maybe, maybe many of you have seen it happen in your own families. Even Christians, for various reasons, it, it could be unconfessed sin, backsliding, it could be difficult, discouraging, hard circumstances, or other things. Even Christians can experience times when, when they become indifferent to the gospel. When the gospel seems to lose its glory and their spiritual life seems to be nothing but going through the motions. Gospel indifference is a danger all of us face. But it is a danger that Christ addresses and challenges 
in our passage this afternoon, Matthew 11, 7 through 19. You know, sometimes we think that if we could just live when Christ was on earth, well, then we wouldn't be so indifferent. Then everything would be so much easier. It would be so much easier to believe and to follow him. But, but even when Christ was on earth, he faced this problem. The Gospels show us time and time again that many who saw his miracles and who heard his preaching were indifferent to the Gospel. And it's that attitude that Christ addresses and challenges here in these verses as he talks to the multitudes about John the Baptist. And so with God's help, we want to look at this passage under the theme, Christ challenges gospel indifference. And we want to see how he does this in three, day, three ways. First, by opening eyes to gospel realities. Second, by urging earnest use of gospel opportunity. And third, by confronting the rejection of gospel ministry. So first, opening eyes to gospel realities. In the first six verses of Matthew chapter 11, the Lord Jesus answers a question raised by John the Baptist. Perhaps a, a bit of a surprising question if we know what, who John was and what he had been privileged to, to do. He, he asks through his disciples because he was in prison at the time. He sends two disciples and he asks Jesus the question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus answers him in verses 4 and 5 by, by pointing the, these disciples to, to both his amazing miracles and the gospel preaching which the Old Testament especially the prophet Isaiah, had said the Messiah would do. They were proof, you see, that Jesus was indeed the coming one. He was indeed the Messiah. And Jesus then concludes with this solemn blessing. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. It's a blessing and it's a warning really all rolled into one, isn't it? Because it's warning us, don't be offended at Jesus. Don't sin by rejecting him. Blessing comes only through trusting and following him, no matter what the cost. But that also means there's no room for indifference toward him. And that is what Jesus now begins to address when when John's disciples leave and, and he turns to the multitudes who have been watching and listening. He speaks to them about John the Baptist and in, in one sense, he, he certainly defends John, doesn't he? He defends his character, but, but why does he do that? His, his purpose is not merely to defend John. His purpose is, is much bigger. His purpose, especially in verses 7 through 11, is to open their eyes and to open our eyes to gospel realities. And the first gospel reality he highlights is this. The time of God's promised coming has arrived. The time of God's promised coming has arrived. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus asks the people three times, doesn't he? He says, what did you go out to see? He's he's clearly talking to people who who were familiar with John's ministry, people who had gone out to, to see and to hear John preaching in the wilderness by the Jordan. And what had they heard? They had heard John preaching 
a gospel message, a message that Matthew describes for us in Matthew 3, a, a message that ca called them to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, a message that pointed to Jesus as the coming one. And so Jesus, he asked these people, what did you see in John? So in verse 7, he begins, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, the answer is obvious. Jesus doesn't answer it, but the, the answer is obvious because he keeps going. Of course not. And John wasn't that kind of a man. He wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. Verse 8, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Again, the answer is obvious. Of course not. And Jesus emphasizes that by adding, indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Where was John? He was not in a king's house. He was in a king's prison. And so verse 9, Jesus asks again, But what did you go out to see? A prophet? And here Jesus' answer is different, isn't it? He says yes. And confirms that yes with I say to you. It's the answer he expects from the people. And certainly up to this point, Jesus is not saying anything new. He's not saying anything that the people didn't already know and believe. Because Matthew tells us elsewhere that the people counted John as a prophet. But here at this point, Jesus goes further. He wants them to see something more in John. He wants them to see in John the reality that the time of God's promised coming has arrived. And so in verse 9, he continues, Not only is John a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that John isn't just another prophet. The prophets, the prophets foretold the coming of God. They promised the coming of God. But John is not just another prophet. He is the bridge from promise to fulfillment. He isn't just another foreteller of God's promise coming. He is the forerunner of the Lord himself. And to support this, he quotes as fulfillment of who John is, Malachi 3, verse 1. He is God. John is God's last messenger, you see, before his coming. He's the preparer of God's way. The time of God's promised coming has arrived. And beloved, that is nothing to be indifferent to. Children, you maybe, maybe your parents have promised a summer vacation this, this summer. Maybe, or maybe some day trips to the beach or a place like that. Well, that's exciting, isn't it? And you, and you wait and maybe you count down the, the sleeps, the nights, and, and then that, that, that night finally comes when they've, they've packed the van and it's a sign to you that, that it's coming. Tomorrow is the day. Well, you wouldn't be indifferent to that. Of course not. You, you're excited because the time of fulfillment of the promise has come. And that is what Jesus is showing here. The time of the promised coming of God has come, has arrived. God himself in the person of his son has come in human flesh to live among us. Should we be indifferent to that? Should we just shrug our shoulders and, and hardly give it a second thought? 
But this isn't the only gospel reality Christ opens our eyes to. Because he shows us here not only that the time of God's promised coming has arrived, but also, also that his judgment is delayed. You see, when you look at that prophecy that Jesus quotes in, Matthew, in Malachi 3, in the context, it's, it's primarily talking about God's coming as judge. It's God's coming is the answer to the people's question at the end of Malachi 2. Where is the God of justice? And in verse 1, then God answers and he says, as it were, I'm coming. And then verse 2 says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? This is referring to his judgment. And now in Matthew 11, Jesus is saying that this time of God's coming has arrived. But, and, and, and John is his messenger. Jesus himself is the Lord. God come in human flesh. But now where is the judgment? It's not happening. This is why... This is most likely why John the Baptist asked the question he did. He, he knew his Old Testament and he knew that it predicted that when Christ would come there would be judgment, but the judgment wasn't happening. He had pointed to Jesus as Christ, but the, the judgment which the Old Testament said Christ would, would bring wasn't happening. Instead, as Jesus makes clear in verse 5, instead of judgment, there is mercy. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Instead of judgment, there's mercy. Does that mean God's judgment won't happen? No, it will. It will happen, but it means that it's delayed. Today is a day of grace. The time of God's coming has arrived, but his judgment is delayed. Congregation, that's still true today. That reality is your and my reality. The time of God's coming has arrived, but his judgment is delayed. It's been delayed for 2,000 years. He won't delay it forever. But he's delayed it this long. And why has he delayed it? Why? So that we can have a comfortable religious routine of going to church? so that we can just hear another gospel message, another gospel preacher, and then, and then get on with our lives and our sin the rest of the week. No. He's delayed his judgment to give us opportunity to repent, to put our trust in Jesus, God come in the flesh, who took God's judgment for all who trust in him. He's delayed his judgment to give you children to give you, young people, older ones, opportunity to flee to Christ, to confess your sins to Him and cry out for His salvation. And beloved, when the Lord opens your eyes to see these gospel realities, then indifference is no longer an option for you, is it? When, the, when, the, when, when you really see what, what God has done in Christ, that you are living in the day of grace, 
And you can't be indifferent, can you? No, then you must be zealous, zealous to, to repent and to believe in Jesus like John called and like Christ himself called us to. Then you become zealous too. The Christians become zealous to tell others around us this glorious reality that they also may have opportunity to repent and to believe the gospel. Does that describe your, my, your life? Does that describe my life? Christ shows us one more gospel reality that really flows out of the first two. Because the timing of God's coming has arrived in and with Jesus Christ. And because his judgment is delayed, every believer in Jesus Christ has incomparable privileges. That's what Jesus is saying when he makes this remarkable, really almost a a mind-blowing statement in verse 11. Listen to what he says. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does Jesus mean? What does he mean when he says there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist? He's saying, congregation, that John had an incomparable privilege. He was privileged, you see, as, as, as Jesus was implying, really in verse In verse 10, he was privileged to announce that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He was privileged to to point people to Jesus, even to point to him physically and to say, look, there he is, there is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. That's what made him so great, greater than anyone born among women. We can hardly imagine a greater privilege, can't we? But then Jesus says this, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What makes the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than John? It's their knowledge of Jesus. John himself was a saved man. He believed in Jesus. But you see, he didn't know Jesus the way we can know him today. What is the kingdom of heaven that he that he announced would arrive. It, 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 the kingdom of heaven in, in the Gospel of Matthew refers to God's rule on earth through the person and work of Jesus Christ. John, you see, announced the arrival of that kingdom. But he never saw it arrive himself. He, he saw Jesus. He pointed him out. He was privileged to, to baptize him. But he didn't see it arrive. Matthew 4 verse 12 tells us that John was put in prison before Jesus began his public ministry, before his preaching and miracles. So John, in a very real sense, yes, he was saved, but he did not see the kingdom of heaven come on earth. He, he belonged to, to that Old Testament time, that, that time of, of, of prophecy before the, the accomplished, accomplishment of redemption by our Lord. But every believer who has who has lived during or after Jesus' ministry, has seen it. Because they have seen Jesus, either in person, as some who who did, who were lived like his disciples, or in the Word of God, as, as we do today. So even the least New Testament believer, by God's Word and Spirit, you see, can know Jesus better, far better, far more, in greater ways, And John did. 
Do you understand your privileges, dear believers? You can know Jesus as a sympathetic high priest in a way John the Baptist never could because he, he never lived to see the high priest offer up himself. Of course, he knows it in heaven, but on earth, I mean. You can, you can know him as one, the Lord Jesus, you can know him as one who knows what it is to suffer for doing good, one who can sympathize with you. You can know him as the one who has fully paid for all of your sin because you have the word of God that proclaims where he proclaimed on the cross, it is finished, paid in full. You can know Jesus as the one who has triumphed over death in the grave and who delivers you from the fear of death. You can know Jesus as the one who has risen and who has ascended into heaven and who now intercedes for you in heaven. You can know him even when you have sinned as your righteous advocate in heaven with the Father. You can know Jesus as the author and finisher of your faith. You can know him as the one who is preparing a place for you, even for you who feel that you are the least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be a grown-up to be greater than John because the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Isn't that so encouraging? To every believer. But isn't it also so searching? Because if the reality is that all of us can know Jesus better than John did because of the time in which we live after Jesus' accomplishment of redemption, the question is, do you? Do you? Do you know this Jesus your Bible talks about personally? Do you know what it is to be greater than John? Are you in the kingdom of heaven? That's really the question, right? How are you responding to these gospel realities? And so this brings us to the second thing John do, or Jesus does rather to challenge gospel indifference. He not only opens eyes to gospel realities, he also urges earnest use of gospel opportunity. We see this especially in verses 12 through 15. Let's read that for a minute together. Jesus says, beginning in verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now verse 12, admittedly, is not an easy verse to understand. And different commentators, different, even different translations give different interpretations, particularly over what the word suffers violence and violent means. But it's important to when we, when we come across a difficult verse, of course, to always be dependent on the Spirit of God, seeking His help to understand a difficult verse. But it, it's also important to read the verse in context. So look again at, at verse 11. Jesus 
speaks of the kingdom of heaven very positively there, doesn't he? He speaks of being in the kingdom of heaven and, and the blessings that come with that. And now, now some think that in verse 12, he switches and, and talks about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence in a, in a negative sense of, of being attacked and, and opposed by the enemies of the kingdom. And certainly that you could argue that fits with the context of John's imprisonment. But Jesus is not talking about John's imprisonment here. He's talking about John's ministry and the great gospel realities that stem from that. Especially the reality of that God's promise of the Messiah is being fulfilled. And so that, that's what Jesus implies. Again in verse 13, he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The implication is now things have changed. Now is the time not of prophecy, but of fulfillment. The kingdom of, uh, of heaven which John announced has come in Jesus Christ. And that means that this is a time of gospel opportunity. Because it's this reality, the reality that the age of gospel fulfillment has come that gives rise to the kingdom of heaven, suffering violence. Maybe you're still confused. Let me, let me point you to another text, Luke 16, verse 16, where Jesus uses the same word that is translated here as suffers violence, and he speaks to the, the Pharisees who were basically sneering at him, and he says there that since the days of John, so again, a reference to John the Baptist, everyone meaning people from every place and every background, is pressing into the kingdom of God. This is his point. Now going back to Matthew, this is his point here in Matthew 11. The kingdom of heaven is suffering violence, or you could translate being pressed into. It is being entered. Not through indifference, but through zealous effort, through, through striving Jesus uses, says that elsewhere too, right? Strive to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the violence, take it by force. Only those who put forth, who strive to enter the kingdom, who, who, who zealously, who, are no, who, who forsake indifference and strive to enter the kingdom, enter. The Puritans, this was the interpretation that many of the Puritans gave as well, and perhaps an illustration will help. An illustration from Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. He gives us a helpful picture of what Jesus is saying. Actually references, references this text. On, on his way to the celestial city, you, you may be familiar with Christian's journey. Christian stops at the interpreter's house. And at the interpreter's house, he's shown all, all kinds of things. And, and one of the things the interpreter shows him is this beautiful palace. And he takes Christian to the door of this palace. And he sees... Among other things, he sees a man there with, sitting at a table. And, and the job of that man is to write down the names of anyone who wants to come and, and enter. But he also sees all these people standing around the door of this palace. And, and they, 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 they want to enter, but they just, they don't. They don't dare. Because, why don't they dare? Because all, just inside the door, there's all these armed guards who are going to try and stop them and hurt them, hurt anyone who would try to get in. So Christian sees this, and then he sees a man come to the, the man that's sitting at a table. And he says, put my name down. 
And so the man at the table puts his name down, and then this first, this man that has come, he gives him his name. He, after he gives him his name, he draws his sword, he puts his helmet on, and then he rushes forward to the door where the armed men attack him. But he doesn't give up, you see. Instead, he, he takes his sword and he, he strives to enter. He cuts and he hacks and he, and he swings his sword until he gets through the armed guards and he enters in and he receives a royal welcome. That's the picture. That's the kind of attitude. That's the kind of resolve that Jesus is saying we need if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I ask, does that describe us? Does that describe you and me? Maybe you say, I thought we're saved by grace, not by works. You're right. You're absolutely right. But you see, grace doesn't make us indifferent. Grace makes us zealous. Grace makes us earnest to enter the kingdom of heaven. It makes us earnest in faith and repentance. It makes us zealous and intentional also in speaking the gospel to others. Because you see, the indifference that we see in our culture and our society around us is not solved by a silent church. The way into the kingdom of heaven is not by indifference. It's by earnest, persevering, resolute faith and repentance. Faith in Jesus Christ proclaimed to us in the gospel and offered. The Lord Jesus continues to press home to urge earnest use of gospel opportunity in verse 14. He says, And if you are willing to receive it, he, that's John, is Elijah who is to come. Here Jesus refers to another prophecy from Malachi, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, where the Lord promises, and I quote now Malachi 4, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. It's a prophecy of grace. Many of the Jews thought that this prophecy meant Elijah himself would come again from the dead. But Jesus is saying here, No, John. John is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He came, you see, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And so now is the day of grace. Now is the opportunity for reconciliation and for restoration. But it's not automatic. We must be willing to receive it. Not in the way of our own understanding, you see, but in God's way, through faith and submission to Him. Congregation, we are living in a day of gospel opportunity. Are we making earnest use of that? Could be you are sitting here this afternoon thinking the gospel is no big deal. You're wrong. The gospel is a big deal. It offers you an opportunity. It offers you the only opportunity, the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Today may be the last time you hear that offer. 
Don't miss out on the kingdom of heaven by being unwilling to receive it. The only alternative you see to the gospel, to the grace and mercy offered to you today in the gospel, is judgment. So Jesus concludes his urging with a solemn saying in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, there's nothing more important in life than responding the right way to the gospel. And what is the right way? It's the way of truly hearing, truly hearing it as God made us to hear with the ears of faith, with the hearing of faith. Is that how you hear the gospel? Is that how I hear the gospel? Is that how you're hearing it even now, today? Plenty of people don't hear it that way. That was true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. It can be true even among religious people. Because you see, many of the the Jews, those whom Jesus was speaking to, were were religious. They were interested in religious things. They, They had gone to hear John preach. They had heard Jesus preach. They, they had seen him do his miracles, but, but they rejected their gospel, both of their gospel ministries. That brings us to our third point. Jesus not only opens eyes to gospel realities and urges earnest use of gospel opportunity, he also confronts the rejection of gospel ministry. And he does that by making a comparison. We see this especially in verses 16 to 19. Jesus says, In those verses, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors. And sinners. That's quite a rebuke, isn't it? Jesus compares the people who are rejecting John and himself really to a bunch of unsatisfied children at the marketplace. You see, in those days when when parents would go to the marketplace, they would take their children along. And and these children, instead of staying with their parents, they would they would come together and they would they would gather together and they would play. now maybe some you children and, and maybe some of you parents think that would be a great idea when we go to the grocery store. But, but just wait a minute, because the picture that Jesus gives of these children isn't a very happy one. Instead, there's a, there's a whole bunch of arguing and complaining going on because all the children want, want to do their own thing and they, and they don't want to do whatever any of the other kids want. I'm sure that sounds familiar in our homes. But here's the point. When people reject the gospel ministry, no matter who the minister or the preacher is, and no matter if the gospel that is proclaimed comes from the Old Testament or the New Testament, when they reject the gospel ministry, they are like unsatisfied children. Yes, they have their excuses, but their excuses only expose their foolishness. John He's extreme. He's always in the wilderness. Seems like he's always fasting. Maybe something's wrong with him. 
He must have a demon. And then Jesus comes, the Son of Man, doing the complete opposite. He's eating and drinking, and what do they say? He must be a glutton and a drunkard. A rebellious son, no doubt. That, that's what a glutton and a drunkard referred to in the Old Testament. And, and look at who he's friends with. He's, he's a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners. Do you, do you hear, congregation, how foolish, how silly these excuses are? They're completely contradictory. Matthew Henry comments on this passage that there is nothing more absurd than to be guilty of hearing good preaching and never being the better for it. See, it shows that the problem is not with the gospel. The problem is with the human heart. To put it bluntly, people who reject the gospel ministry are being childish. It's not because something is wrong with the gospel. It's because they don't want it. It's because they don't want to repent and believe. They don't want to be told what to do. They want things their own way. We would do well to remember this congregation when we are called, as God has called us to, to be his witnesses because we are going to face rejection and we proclaim the gospel to others. We are going to face rejection and sometimes that can be discouraging. And, and we might say, what's, what's wrong? What? And it's good, of course, to examine ourselves the way we present the gospel, but, but we must always remember that it's never the gospel's fault. Rejection, when it happens, is simply the response of a proud sinner who doesn't see yet how childish he or she is being. And it ought to, ought to humble us because, you know, the only reason we are any different, if we are different, is because of God's grace. Because His Spirit has changed, has enlightened, has changed our hearts and enlightened our hearts. So as we proclaim the gospel, don't be discouraged, but, but let it make us more humble and prayerful as we witness for Christ. But maybe, maybe there are some here who are like this generation that Jesus is speaking about. Maybe there are young people here who are like this generation. You, you hear Jesus urging you in in this passage, to be earnest about your salvation. To use the gospel opportunity while you still have it. To be zealous in repentance and faith. But you don't want to stick out. You don't want to be uncool. And so you, maybe you laugh off the sermons. You, you act tough. You make excuses. You, you dismiss the sermons almost as soon as you get out of the room. that's you I ask you to please listen to how Jesus ends in verse 19 with seven words but wisdom is justified by her children I hope you feel the sting wisdom is justified by her children you see, by your remaining indifferent, by your dismissing and ignoring and covering and avoiding the gospel, you're showing that you have absolutely no wisdom. And you're being cool 
or you're fitting in with the crowd, you're being popular, doesn't make up for that. It's meant to sting, it's meant to convict, but it's also meant to offer hope. Because, you see, it shows us that this wisdom that you lack by nature, that all of us lack by nature, isn't something you and I need to come up with. It's something God has come up with. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the wisdom of God is what? It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So you don't have to look for wisdom in yourself. You'll never find it in yourself. You only find it in Jesus Christ. And so your responsibility then is to simply look to him in faith. That's what it means when it says that wisdom is justified by her children because you see faith justifies the wisdom of God. It justifies Jesus Christ in the sense that it, it acknowledges him and treats him as righteous. It isn't indifferent toward him. It isn't offended or ashamed of him. It, is, it, it submits to him. It trusts in him as the one who is crucified, the perfectly righteous one who is crucified in the place of sinners in your place. Do you have that faith that justifies the wisdom of God? And are you growing? Congregation, are you growing in that faith? Oh, may that be the fruit this day of Christ-challenging gospel indifference. How foolish it would be to go out of this room and to reject the Savior, to reject this one who is indeed the friend of sinners. How foolish it would be to continue being indifferent to him. You know, Jesus goes on in this chapter to warn people who heard the gospel and didn't repent that their judgment will be worse than the judgment of those who never heard. But he also goes on in this chapter to invite all to come to him, all who are carrying the burden of sin, and that includes every single one of you and me. So let's not dismiss the word that we have heard, but let us hear it. Let us hear it willingly, hear it eagerly, hear it with faith. And let us not rest, let no one rest until we have all come and embraced Jesus Christ by faith. Because there's no greater privilege, there is no greater privilege than to know him, the crucified, the risen, and the ascended Savior as your Savior and Lord. And if you know him, if you know him, then don't you have that great privilege too of proclaiming him far and wide, trusting, trusting that he who broke through and continues to break through our indifference, our hardness, can and will cause his gospel word to break through many more indifferent and yes, even hostile hearts with saving power. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Father in heaven, we stand amazed at your gospel. And we pray that you would take the word that was proclaimed this afternoon and drive it home to our hearts. Forgive us, O oh God. Forgive us for gospel indifference. Cleanse us. Wash us clean of that. 
And make us zealous. Make us earnest. Make us passionate for you. Passionate to love you. Desiring to serve you. Desiring to proclaim you to an indifferent world. And may you, O Lord, hear our prayers to open hard hearts, closed hearts, to soften hard hearts, and to call sinners in our church, in our families, and in our world to you. Thank you for your great salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be with us in the rest of this day and as we go into this week. We ask this all in Jesus' name alone. Amen.